You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hey, 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 you big players out there. It is us again, Morgan and Murph, coming back to you with episode 121. Can you believe that, Murph? 121 episodes. It seems like just last week we were doing episode 120. You know, and the week before that, 119. I mean, how time flies, you know? (laughs) Not sure how we're getting all these in, to be quite honest with you, with our travel schedules lately, but hey, we're getting them in. And we're doing some of these on Sunday, you know, at the last minute, but uh, we're doing our best because we still have a a case of the month for Patreon to record. But anyway, I digress. Thank you, guys. Welcome to Game of Crimes. I'm Morgan Wright, literally here with my partner in crime, the Murferoni, the Murph man, the Murph. Hey, everybody. Steve Murphy here. We don't. How do you how do we know? You know, after our interview, which is going to come out with Mike Fredericks, nobody remembers you in Miami. (laughs) (laughs) All these old farts. I mean, that's. (laughs) <laughs> but you know what? I mean, that's what it is when you, when you're the new guy, when you're the rookie. You know, you get to meet all these these stars and these legends, and and they've been in the job for quite some time. As you're going to hear about Mike, man, he's <laughs> he's got an exciting past. But uh, and then they move on with their careers. They're already moving up before. I, and as I'm just getting started, so you understand why. You know, oh yeah, I met that rookie. No, hell, did I really meet that guy? Well, you know, the good news is if they remembered your name, it's usually for the wrong reasons, not for the right reasons. You know what? That's what we say in DEA. We always remember people for the bad things they did, not the good things. <laughs> well, speaking no, no, of, no hard feelings here. Yeah. Well, speaking of the good things we did, we got some good things to do for you first. But fo- before we can get there, let's get into some housekeeping. Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars, folks. It helps us a lot. In fact, uh, even on Spotify, you've got the ability to leave comments if you didn't know that on the episode. So let us know what you think of those. Uh, but the five stars really help us out. We really appreciate it. Also, head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. You will see the book for our latest guest that is going to be on there, and we'll talk about that during our interview. Also, our uh, all the other things that are there, the episode descriptions, pictures, some really neat stuff. In fact, you got to see the picture of Mike Fredericks that I used Uh-oh. for for this episode. Yes. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. Uh, you'll, 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 it, it goes right in with what we're going to talk about. Hey, also follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be, Murph, where you got to be, you got to be on patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. One of the reasons is we're getting ready to do our case of the month. We've got some interesting things. In fact, uh, one of the cases you're going to talk about happened where my daughter lives. She lives in that county. Oh, geez. Yeah, so we were actually on the phone with her talking about that this morning, just making sure everything's okay. Uh, we've got 911, which emergency. We've got Murph's second attempt to come up with a decent movie to review for the Narcometer. He gets one more shot, and then he's never allowed to touch the keyboard again for movies. Uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> So, but guys, we got a ton of good stuff on there. Uh, like I said, you know, our, our Q and a, um, you can't make this shit up. We got some stuff for you. Can't make this shit up this next time. Murph, I've been saving some stories. I've found some stuff. 
see anything from Florida. Oh, there's always something from Florida. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Again, we like to be the leader, not the follower. Hey, well, you are leading in this category. In fact, there's there's no such thing as Kansas man or Texas man, but there's Florida man. Yeah, baby. That's it. That's us. So head on over to patreon.com slash game of crimes. And also, before we get started, you got to head on over, join up with our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, the iron fist with the velvet glove, who rules all things that are called Game of Crimes fans. Just go to facebook.com, type in Game of Crimes fans, ask, answer a couple questions, and you get admitted into the inner sanctum where all sorts of things go on that we can't disclose because we're all under a non-disclosure agreement enforced you know, by the queen herself. There's hundreds and hundreds of people in there. Come and join them. I mean, there's some yeah. funny stuff that goes on in there. Uh, and some some real serious stuff. I've referred several people for mental health counseling after some of the stuff they've posted. Yes, that was me who did that, folks. Uh, was I on that list? Murph, you're constantly on that list. I just yeah. don't take you off of it. I don't. I want that number one spot, though. <laughs> well, you can be a leader or a follower, Murph. That's you're right. a leader. That's right. <laughs> hey, but before we get into talking about all the other stuff, you know, there's times of days, there's there's times of the season, and there's the time in our episode in our podcast when I have to ask you, do you know what time it is, Murph? Do you know what time it is? I'm going to ask you one more time. Guess what time it is. I think I know what time it is. It's time, time is for... Small Town Police Blotter. That's the theme from the Wild West, which will factor into one of our episodes. There you go. Coming up. All right. Murph. See. Do you know where Miami Gardens is? Yes, I do. Don Shula has a restaurant there. Well, Don should never hire this next guy. You know, Marf, a lot of people go to great lengths to disguise themselves to commit crimes. We've, we've talked about people who've dressed up as clowns, which is easy to spot. What did he look like? It's the only dude dressed like a freaking clown, man. <laughs> Just, you know, people have drawn permanent markers on their face. Well, have you ever heard of a guy that put a box on his head? No. Well, this... This rocket scientist did. He broke in to a phone repair store in Miami Gardens at four in the morning. He was committing a burglary. Pro tip for you riders out there, my biggest pet peeve, do not call it a robbery. You cannot rob a store. You can burgle a store. You rob people. So he broke into the iRepair tech shop located at 4500 Northwest 183rd in Miami Gardens. And uh, he had a box on his head. Well... Wow because he wanted to disguise his face but you know there's one problem with the box unless you cut holes in it to see <laughs> you can't see <laughs> so to see what he was doing he took the box off of his head and just happened to be looking up at the camera <laughs> and then he put the box back on his head well now the owner of the store rightly assumed that this guy was not the brightest bulb in the pack and so he decided to go around the neighborhood and say hey here's this face if you see him let me know, and guess what? They found him drinking with his friends at the nearby liquor store. Jeez. I, I guess he couldn't find a hat. <laughs> no. Anything but a box. Anyway, but he was charged with grand theft, burglary, criminal mischief, cocaine possession, and resisting an officer without violence. According to the police, he stole 19 phones and $8,000 in cash, a total of $15,000. And where did he go blow it on? Went, blow it on Coke. booze. Booze and Coke. But no math. No math. Hey, well, well, not yet. Our rule. Not yet, anyway. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> Don't do math. Murph, uh, you know, let's, 
you know, in our next story, this one comes to us out of Clay County, Missouri. Now, Clay County is over up by Kansas City, Missouri area. Uh, for you folks, pro tip, there are two Kansas cities, Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri. So don't assume. Always ask before you say, oh, Kansas City, Missouri? Okay, no. Could yeah, be Kansas. As if it's not confusing enough to start with. Yeah, but so this one comes from Clay County, Missouri. Now, Murph, if you if you remember back in your days when you used to be a real cop, Krusty Crab, West Virginia, and you were driving on the road, you guys didn't have personalized tags at that time in West Virginia, did you? Mm, not that I remember. But if you'd been driving down the road and you saw a personalized tag that said, We High. <laughs> well, law enforcement, you call that a clue. <laughs> well, they ain't talking about down- high five. <laughs> they shared a, the Clay County uh, Sheriff's Office shared a dash cam photo of an officer approaching the car around the time of the arrest last weekend. They were looking for him. Uh, a good way to avoid the attention of law enforcement while driving is not to flee from a traffic stop and not have a license plate that says we high. Two people were arrested in this incident. Uh, they call it a tough lesson for the couple, although they did not disclose if the couple was indeed high or under the influence. So what happened was is uh, that, you know, they took off. They were able to find them. But here's the thing, though. According to the Missouri Department of Revenue, drivers can opt for customized license plate up to six characters with one space, dash, or apostrophe if desired. There's an application process. As for what's illegal on customized plates, no personalized license plate shall be issued containing any letters, numbers, or combination of letters and numbers which are obscene, profane, patently offensive, or contemptuous of a racial or ethnic group, or offensive to good taste or decency, or would present an unreasonable danger to the health or safety of the applicant, or other users of streets and highways or the public in any location where the vehicle with such plate may be found. Oh, sorry. Took a little nap there. That's what happened was they just bored them to death with the rules, and they're able to get the tag wee high through that. Well, now, do the uh, does the prison systems in that state, are they the ones that produce those license plates? I don't know, but uh, whoever was at the uh, Department of Revenue that approved this tag should have been drug tested. <laughs> they, they have one that says, we fired. We fired, yeah. Used to be, used to be hired, now we fired. Yeah. All right, so Murph, this one comes to us from Baxter County, Arkansas. Uh, some of you may refer to it as Arkansas, but it is technically Arkansas. That's right. There's no W in there, all right? So a man from Arkansas, I'll just go with it, has been charged after a deputy spotted him. But what they were, he was in a car and it was rocking. Remember the old saying, if it's rocking, don't bother mm-hmm. knocking? Oh, yeah. Well, he was in there by himself, which is should be your first clue. Theodore Morgavin III is charged with two counts of possession of a controlled substance, public sexual indecency, possession of drug paraphernalia, and bringing drug paraphernalia into a government facility. Around uh, 1245, a Baxter County deputy noted the car at a commercial storage facility in Midway, Arkansas, population 377. Salute. The deputy approached the rocking car, which did not have a sign that says, if it's rocking, don't bother knocking, and saw Morgavin... I hate that name because it sounds too much like mine. In the car being sexual with a stuffed animal. Oh, jeez. Oh, God. I'd say I didn't see that one coming. Oh, According to God. investigators, the deputy found a purse that had drug paraphernalia in it. After going to jail, investigators continued to search the purse and found three grams of meth. You should have listened to the Game of Crimes. We give you good advice here. Yeah, don't do rule number one. Don't do meth. You got any more uh, stories there, Morgan? No, <laughs> don't call me that. <laughs> you know it's going to stick. No, it is not. I'm hey, for all our I'm, listeners, especially those of you on, on Facebook, you know, let us know what you think about that name, Morgan. For Morgan. <laughs> I will <laughs> edit you out of this podcast. Sorry. 
<laughs> I'm not sorry. Yeah, you're not sorry, but I'll tell you one thing we're not sorry about, though, is bringing on our next guest, because he has yeah. got a fantastic book, which is listed on our book page. I know you have it there, Murph. I do. You have it in your hands. It's called uh, Busting Drug Dealers, The True Story, Diaries of a DEA Special Agent by Mike Fredericks. And what and, we were talking about at the beginning of this, Mike, I met Mike as a rookie agent down in Miami back in the late 1980s, late 87, early 88. And uh, and he was presented to me by my senior partner as uh, a legend within DEA. And after you hear his story, you'll probably understand why. But uh, he revealed to us on the podcast, as you'll hear, that he doesn't quite recall ever meeting me. And now, how could you forget me? Well, really? it's, the, it's the same guy. Well, were you going to hear about the great turkey caper, the exploding Christmas video? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I read that in the book. That was just hilarious. So, uh, But, I mean, the, the beginning of his book, I can't remember if I read it on Amazon. You know, you can get the fir- first few pages for free or if Mike actually sent it to me to give me an idea about the book. And I'm not going to tell you about it because he's going to tell you about the story, but it is one of the most captivating stories I, I've you know, those attention getters that I've read and, and it didn't tell me what happened. So I called him like, dude, what happened? Well, you got to read the book. <laughs> well, so you're still alive. So I guess that worked out, but <laughs> yeah, well, that, and yeah, you're right. And there's another very interesting thing too, that happened to him while he was on vacation. You think of all places while you're on vacation, taking a cruise, this is one of the last things you would think would happen to you. But Murph, we're not going to find out what happens to Mike. Yeah, or anything else until I ask you the question, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, and not meth-friendly game of all, Game of Crimes? Hey, everybody, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Here we go with Mike Fredericks and his stories, even if you don't remember remember me, Mike. I still love you, brother. Well, welcome back again. This sounds like National Public Radio. We're going to discuss. <laughs> no, this sounds a hell of a lot better than NPR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, guys, this is going to be fun, too, because uh, Murph, once again, you have secured us. You have brought us. And, and by the way, too, he's not too far from me. You're down in Haymarket. I'm up in Ashburn, and the traitorous bastard Murphy left us and went to Florida. So that hey, speaks volumes about him. Yeah, but let me ask you, are you under a hurricane watch? I mean, a tornado watch right now? I am. That's why you should have stayed up here, pal. <laughs> no, it's exciting. Life's an adventure. <laughs> All right. Say so, so, Mike Fredericks, DEA, man about town and the world. Welcome. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be here. I mean, I'm I'm kind of overwhelmed. I listen to the podcast, you know, and I'm I go, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I well, have a not- verified listener base of one now. That's, that's right. <laughs> Mike, you know how it is. I mean, when you when you uh, travel the world, we all and that's what I love about the law enforcement culture is you make friends that become lifelong friends. And when I first met Mike, I was a baby agent down in Miami in in the late eighties, eighty seven, eighty eight, probably eighty eight. I thought you were in were you in the Bahamas in eighty eight? No, I uh, you know I'm going to pull a Charles Lutz and do uh, it right off the bat, Murph. I don't, don't remember, remember you me, from Miami at all. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch! I don't want to use Lutz's line, but I mean, I you know, but no, I was in San Juan uh, at that time. Oh, it's the same thing. I mean, that's close to the Bahamas. You know, but but I I was introduced to you by Gene Franco. I know you remember Gene. Um, And Gino was my first agent, my you know, my senior agent when I first got on the job. So, 
Uh, Murph, I'm starting to wonder if you really did work at DEA. <laughs> well, I don't know. I might have dreamt that shit up. I don't know. You know, sometimes sometimes I have some vivid dreams. But uh, I woke up one woke up one morning and there I was in La Catedral sleeping in Pablo's bed. <laughs> that was Javier. That wasn't me. But here's the main sure. thing. How we do got, we know? How do we know at this point now, Murph? Well, ask Javier. But here's the main thing. We got Mike's happy ass here on the show today. So welcome, Michael. Thank you, sir. And in all fairness, when you get to be my age, you just forget some things, you know. So it's not brother, on Murphy. It's on me. I'm right there with you, brother. <laughs> Although I do remember you. Come on. I don't want to make this sound like we're recruiting out of the old folks home to do podcasts. Now. <laughs> hey, you in the wheelchair over here. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, man. After reading, uh, I, I, I've got to be honest, Mike, I didn't get finished with your book, but I got up through chapter 21. And reading all these adventures, it's a miracle you're even here with us today. Well. I appreciate that, and thank God, God and my wife. I think that's the only reason we're sitting here. For our listeners, Mike's book is out. It's Busting Drug Dealers, Diaries of a DEA Special Agent. Uh, You can get it just about anywhere that you can find books. I know it's on Amazon, but you also have a website, right, Mike? Yes, specialagentpress.com. There you go. www.specialagentpress.com. There you go. Thank this, you. You know, and I, I got to say, and we're going to talk about this, but I didn't know you were at Tranquilandia. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. we're, we're going to get to that. Okay. That's, let's just leave it at that for now. Okay. Well, let's, well, well we, we can't leave it at that because we got to start somewhere to get to that. So let's start where we do with everybody. Cosa Nostra, thing of ours. So Mike Fredericks from Haymarket, Virginia. Well, how did you get started in this thing of ours? Because originally I know... Uh, you know, I've read your bio and, you know, obviously done a little bit of research on you, but it never tells the story. So, um, but you know, eventually you worked into being a sky marshal, but you took a convoluted route along the way. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> and it was kind of an on and off again thing about wanting to be a, a some kind of law enforcement guy. You know, I, when I grew up in high school and so forth, I was watching all these shows, 77th Sunset Trip. I'm predating you guys, but Mannix and FBI story, all this kind I of stuff. I remember Mannix. Oh, yeah. yeah. I remember Ephraim Zemblis Jr. <clears throat> yep, exactly. And I thought it'd be kind of cool to be some kind of detective or private eye or agent of some kind. And then, you know, the transition from junior high to high school, like that kind of got lost. And my dad was um, a career customs guy. He started with U.S. Customs when he was 19 years old. And he had a 41-year career, and he did everything. I mean, all kinds of stuff throughout his the development of his career. He was an auditor. He was an inspector. He was all kinds of stuff. So by the time I got to high school, he was in um, Denver, Colorado, as the assistant collector of customs. And that's the highest career spot because the collector, much like the U.S. attorneys, was politically appointed. So he was the kind of the top guy in customs. And he would work with the FBI SACs. And special agents in charge. I know how you guys are with acronyms. So, <laughs> good man, good man. <laughs> so he'd worked with FBI and Secret Service because we're no customs agents in the state of Colorado at the time. So as I'm growing up and I'm sitting there, he'd have these agents from the border, what we call the border rats, coming up from El Paso, Brownsville, places like that in Texas who were doing drug loads into the United States. And if they were transiting Colorado or desti- the destination was Colorado, they'd have to touch base with my dad because he was, a, you know, the ranking customs guy. So he'd have these agents over for dinner. And I, I kind of grew up my junior year, senior year, high school, listening 
to these stories from these agents and thinking, wow, this is really cool stuff. You know, they, they told all the cool stuff, but they never mentioned the danger or any of that kind of stuff. You know, the good guys always won. It was back in the day when the good guys won, the James Bond guys of the world won, got the girl and all that kind of stuff. And, and I kind of got hooked. So even though your dad was customs, it sounds like where you, you didn't have to move around where I mean, you were you because did you go to junior high, high school, the same place? You all stayed in the same place. By the time I got to junior high school, we did stay in the same place. But up until then, it was pretty erratic. Um, by the time I was 12 years old, I'd been in every state west of the Mississippi. I went to kindergarten and first grade in Duluth, Minnesota, second grade in Palo Alto, California, third in Santa Barbara, fourth in San Mateo. Fifth, we moved to Colorado. We're at Colorado. uh, We were actually living in Wheat Ridge, Colorado, a suburb in Jefferson County, northwest of Denver. Yeah, I know know that area well. My uh, all of my parents were Western Slope folks, Gunnison, Grand Junction, um, you know that area out there. So, but it sounds like it it sounds like uh, between uh, birth and junior high, you didn't take your shit out of a box; you just left it in there. Pretty much so. (laughs) You know, I think the high point was when we moved from California to Colorado. It was like over Christmas vacation. They took me out of school, and I have a younger brother, four years younger. Um, They took us out of school, and we drove from California to Colorado. And spent Christmas that year in the Bugs Bunny Motel on West Colfax in in uh, Jefferson County, in Lakewood, Colorado. So well, that was you know that was an introduction to your future career there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the time I got to the SF, uh, what is it, uh, eighty two or whatever the form is for the background? Yeah. When I came the on the SF job, 86? I was, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah, I, I was 24 years old. I had 26 previous addresses I had to find out. Oh my god! <laughs> I thought I was bad. My dad was military. We lived overseas. You know, we lived in Iran. You know, we moved around a lot. Not that much, but yeah. By the time I was in fifth grade, I had gone to six different schools, and I, we'd lived overseas and come back. And so, filling out the SF-86, I started looking. I said, I can't find anybody back from Iran. I don't. You know, they're all dead or been buried in the sand. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. So anyhow, that's uh, initially I wanted to, to join the Marine Corps out of high school, which was not something my folks wanted to hear. Uh, because, you know, I, I grew up, I had a music background, actually. I was kind of the wannabe. I wanted, wanted to be on the football team. I wanted to be, you know, a wrestler and all that stuff. But the band kind of superseded because I started playing trumpet in third grade. And by the time I got up into junior high and high school, I'd switched to trombone. So by the time I was a senior in high school, I was a drum major and a student conductor and all that stuff. It was a big deal. I mean, we had a big, big a band. We had like 140 marching band. We performed the Denver Broncos and all over the place, you know, won all kinds of awards. But I was a frustrated wannabe. I wanted to be a jock. I mean, they got the girls, right? So... Um, I, I feel, brother, I feel your pain. I was a music major in college. I was baritone, <laughs> trombone, you know, yeah. low brass major. And yeah, yeah it's like, you know, they, they make jokes about us music majors. But then then you would see Bon Jovi and you'd see, you know, Aerosmith. And you say, that was me. I actually had the chance to audition for Johnny Carson's oh, band. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, Never made it out there because I couldn't come up with the money. I was a broke-ass college student. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason we got that is where I lived at in North Central Kansas um clay center a town called clay center was one of the schools in our league well the band director there was good friends with doc severinson and doc severinson came out to play 
and we had a jazz band competition and he heard me play said hey you ought to come out and try out i said i'd love to here's how you do it and then i could never raise the damn money that's frustrating for my my only saving grace was uh, my senior year we had a new teacher come in and he introduced the gymnastics team and we'd never had a team actually in the whole conference in jefferson county we we never had a team before in any schools so they started gymnastics my senior year and i was i was fortunate enough to to get my athletic letter after a couple of meets so that that was my consolation prize for the jocks there you go and that's you know, I, I love all this music, this talk about music. Can we get back to law enforcement here? <laughs> hey, let, let me tell you. Here's something else I found out. Don't don't diss music majors. Um, they were we had these these folks recruiting and stuff, you know, come to work for us and you know, had no idea who they were until years. I mean, two decades later, I'm teaching interview and interrogation out at the National Security Agency, the National Cryptologic School, and I'm talking to one of the guys, and he talked about how they used to recruit before it was called no such agency. One of the top people they would recruit, Mike, were music majors and he said he said there's a possibility that may have been you know an nsa you know uh, covert outreach because music majors were good at recognizing patterns seeing things and being able to you know you sight read music you have to see so there you go murph music majors (laughs) first line of defense on defending america America. i'm sorry sorry i was reading did you say something to me (laughs) you you wouldn't have understood it so let's move on i'm looking at pictures here on mike's website some cool pictures here brother oh yeah i love your undercover picture in pakistan i I did some work over there for a while in uh, islamabad it's what was your name mohammed or something like that dude how did you pass for a pakistani you had the you had the porn stash going i mean i'll give you that that was a good that was a good middle eastern stash (laughs) i never had to pass i had a a pakistani passport that a ci got me and had that worked up and had a case going on and we were actually going to go to seattle and I was, uh, you know, but they we're jumping way ahead. But, yeah, I had a, an ID, the whole package and everything. I had an import-export business set up as a cover. But uh, the case fell apart because the guys, the mopes got arrested on another case before I got to L.A. Don't you hate it when that happens? Well, yeah, yeah. Let's let's not jump too far ahead, but I do want to talk about that. Um, but but so but but you you like I said you started college. It quite wasn't your thing. Married your high school sweetheart, you know, the cheerleader sweetheart, right? Right. And let's talk about a few of these jobs you bounced around in because that is kind of a very odd collection before you actually get into real law enforcement. <laughs> Yeah. Well, once again, thanks to my dad, because when I was uh, trying to do driver's ed, uh, my birthday was in September. So I fell in a weird place where I had to take it in summer school. I wanted to take driver's ed in summer school. So he said, nope, you take driver's ed, you sign up for typing. I said, what are you talking about? I'm not going to be a secretary. He says, you get typing, it's a skill you can use. Shoot forward a couple of years. And when I graduated from high school, the first job I got was as a clerk typist for the state of Colorado for a summer job. But then I went off, I transferred to school. I went to Adams State, which you may be familiar with, down in Alamosa. Uh, went there a little over a year, got bored, dropped out, transferred to Oregon State University in Corvallis. My dad had been transferred to Portland, Oregon in the interim, so I got residency status there. And then I got, like, again, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I dropped out, went back to Denver, got married, and then Got a job at the uh, Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad. That lasted a month. And then SS Kresge Company, which was a forerunner of Kmart. That was a parent company of Kmart. 
And that lasted about three months. I got pissed off at the, uh, the manager that I was working for. I mean, I was, had these departments I was supposed to stock, you know, like the aquarium thing and dry goods and so forth. I bounced out of there and got a job as an investigator for an outfit called Hooper Homes Bureau, commercial reporting. And we do background investigations for insurance applicants. So that's kind of where I got my feet wet doing investigations. Um, but then when they found out I was looking for a federal job and applying for a federal job, I lost that after about a year and a half. They, I hit the bricks again. So I did a couple other things after. By the time you actually got around to being in law enforcement, it was documented you couldn't hold a job. <laughs> Correct. Correct. I think the calendar year 1968, I had like three full-time jobs and about six part-time jobs. I was doing process serving for a while until I walked in one time and the, the secretary, I was waiting for the lawyer to get finished doing something and give me a package to deliver. And uh, yeah, I talked to the secretary and she says, how do you like the job? And I said, hey, good part-time gig. My own hours, I get paid hourly, I, expenses, good deal. She says, you know why your predecessor left, right? So no, nobody ever talked to me about that. She says, he got shot. <laughs> I said, what? Okay. He said, yeah, he was serving divorce papers on a guy, and, uh, and they were sitting around drinking, and the guy's brother got pissed off at him and shot him because he was trying to serve you know, the recipient with divorce papers. So I quit that job. <laughs> Some people just can't take a joke. <laughs> well, I, before we move on, I, you just got to tell me about being a traveling encyclopedia salesman. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, that came after all these other shenanigans. And I needed something to put food on the table. You know, I had a wife, young daughter, and uh, so I got this job because they had all these promises, classified ads. You know, at that time, I think it was like 600 bucks a month plus commissions, yada, yada, yada. Was it Encyclopedia Britannica? It was Grolier International, which had encyclopedias. And then they had educated, they had a series of science books, uh, geography books, stuff like that, the whole package. So they put you through this training and it's, you know, Today and today, only one-tenth of a dollar, you know, da, 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 da. you give them the sales pitch and try and sell them the whole package, and you know the drill. So what happened was I was living in Arvada, Colorado, a suburb of Denver, and the job took me to Iowa, Kansas. I was on the road, and my wife and, and the young daughter were, were stuck in Denver. They were not paying me while I was on the road, they told me they were sending my check to my wife. They told my wife they were paying me on the road. So they oh. were stiffing me and no money. And that, you know, that, that got tough. It got so tough on Thanksgiving in 1968, me and me, I and uh, three of my cohorts, three other encyclopedia salesmen uh, didn't have any money. We didn't have a nickel to put together. We had like $12, $15 between the four of us on Thanksgiving. We went into a Howard Johnson's, started eyeing the turkey that was on display. One guy says, one guy says, I'll go out and get the car and bring it around back. The other guy says, yeah, I'll go with him. So left two of us. We looked at each other and I said, okay, I'll grab it. You get as much fruit as you can. So I grabbed the turkey and went for the back door, you know, this hallway that goes to the to the restrooms and so forth. And they go storming down the door. And by that time, one of the waitresses heard she's screaming, the cook's coming out of the kitchen screaming, <laughs> hit that, that push bar in the door, and it didn't open. 
it's one of those things, alarm will go off and all. It didn't open. I hit it again. The guy runs into the back and we got the door open. Snow had started falling. This was in Ottumwa, Iowa. And, uh, Hope of radar O'Reilly. <laughs> so we hit, we hit the car, hit the getaway car, jumped in the back seat and stashed the hotel or stashed the turkey in the, in the motel. Kept thinking the cops were going to come, you know, so. And then the damn thing wasn't even cooked. Oh. They'd, they'd only browned it for display. So I ripped oh. a, a drumstick off the turkey. We couldn't even eat it. So, <laughs> and, then, and at that point, you knew a life of crime was not a good fit yeah, for you. Yeah, I, I figured I'd better go the other side of the wall. Oh, uh, my God. <laughs> now, did, did that come back to haunt you on any of your applications? What application? Yeah. <laughs> what turkey? <laughs> what turkey? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Don't know what you're talking about. No, I, Pardon me I while I take this uh, <laughs> penicillin for my salmonella poisoning. After <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was a, you got to remember, that was a day before smartphones. No cameras, no pictures, no evidence. Yep. That was uh, That's a prime example of Murphy's Law. <laughs> Just, just yeah. Remember that rule: admit nothing, deny everything. You know, uh, uh, make counter accusations. So, there you go. Uh, or as the military said, no waiver, no statement, no poly. So, <laughs> <laughs> so once you realize that that wasn't the life for you, how did you eventually? Because eventually you end up um, going, which I didn't realize at the time that the uh, Sky Marshals were a part of Treasury. Yeah, that was an interesting thing because what we ended up doing after the encyclopedia fiasco was we we packed up, took a train to Portland, and moved in with my folks for a few months until we could find a place to live. I went to work for Freightliner Corporation and their inventory stuff for six months. Then I went to work for a steel mill outside of Portland, uh, Midland Ross. Actually, it was a, a furnace operation that uh, was experimenting with conversion of steel. And while I was doing that, I kept looking for federal jobs. I kept looking for police jobs. I got into, interviewed at Denver. I got interviewed in Portland for police. And then finally, in about uh, January of 1971, I had three applications come back with job offers. One is an ATF agent. One is a uh, custom security officer, which is the Sky Marshal program, and one is a corrections officer at Multnomah County, uh, the jail in Portland, Oregon. So I wanted to be a special agent, but uh, I was felt a certain loyalty to my, my dad and all those customs agents that had been telling me stories when I grew up. So I took the customs job as a Sky Marshal, and I figured if I can do that for maybe, I'll give myself two years to try and rotate that into an agent's position and start with customs. And then I'll, I'll be a customs agent like I wanted to be. So that's kind of how that came about. Now they hired me at the end of uh, January 71 and I went to training in, in March. But that was Sky Marshal, right? Yeah. So, you know, cause I think back to when, when you say Sky Marshal, for me, it evokes images of like uh, some of the terrorist hijackings, you know, we, I mean, that, People don't realize, but hijacking planes was kind of a common occurrence in the 60s and 70s. Exactly. I mean, that's that's why the Nixon administration beefed up a lot of stuff. I mean, they, they changed the whole drug enforcement thing. They evolved from uh, the old FBN, Federal Bureau of Narcotics, into BDAC, Bureau of Drug Abuse Control under Health, Education, Welfare. And they created the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs in 68. They, they merged the 
predecessor agencies and created BNDD in 68. Well, at the time the uh, Sky Marshall program came in in 71, it was in response to a lot of the political hijackings to Cuba and around the world, Middle East hijackings. They were taking planes, blowing them up, taking hostages, that kind of stuff. So they hired about 2,200 of these custom security officers. Justice didn't want it. The FBI didn't want it. The Marshal Service didn't want it. So Customs, the Commissioner of Customs, stepped up, took responsibility. So they hired about 2,200 under the Customs Service. You had a pretty exciting career there, too, as a Sky Marshal, didn't you? I only had one incident. I only did it for, I think, eight months. In those days, what they do is they give you a uniform with your Sam Brown gun belt and everything, and, and you do airport security along with the private security guys that ran the magnetometers. You'd kind of oversee that, and in downtime, you'd red team it. You'd try and smuggle stuff through the, the magnetometers and through the security, you know, guns or grenades and stuff like that to, to try and beat the security and find holes in it. And then what you do is ground security for 30 days, and I was based in Portland, Oregon, and then they'd send you TDY for 60 days. My first TDY was to LA, and I was on uh, Continental Airlines, and they didn't do anything internationally except Micronesia, I think, at the time. So we'd do turnarounds to Honolulu, from LA to Honolulu. Not too bad. Yeah, it was good. We, it was about a 25-hour thing. We, you know, we'd, we'd go over there. It was a five-and-a-half, six-hour flight, whatever it was, and uh, check in, spend the night, come back the next day. And it was, it was kind of cool. That, that was the only time I really had an incident. Uh, you stopped the skyjacking. Yeah. The guy was, at that time, Continental was really good with customer service. They had, in first class, they had the upstairs lounge, because all I flew, basically, was 747s. They were brand new. Big new jumbo jet coming out in the line, and that's what they had. That's what we flew. Um, so, and what what year was that that you were on? Nineteen seventy one. You know, because I was just thinking, I just had to look it up to make sure I got the date. Because I think one of the most famous hijackings, and they made a movie about it. You know, was the Raided in Tebby, but that was seventy six. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, but that's that's your point. There were so many skyjackings and hijackings going on, and all of it political, terrorist-related, you know. But you said you only had one incident. That was kind of a throwaway line. What, what do you mean you only had one thing? Well, I was sitting there. I, was, I happened to be assigned to first class on that, that flight. There were a couple of us in the first class section. And Continental had the upstairs lounge as a first class lounge. So once they went wheels up, and the, the lights went off, you know, for the seatbelt. The first-class passengers could go upstairs. They had this cocktail lounge up there with a couple of stewardesses at the time. Now they're called flight attendants. And so we'd split up, and one guy would stay down on the main deck. One of us would go upstairs. So I went upstairs, and I'm sitting there just minding my own business, keeping an eye on the flight deck, the cockpit door. And they had kind of a circular stairway that came up. And this guy comes walking up the staircase, and he's got a brown paper package under his arm. And, you know, he got my attention. I'm, I'm watching him, and he comes into the lounge area, and he sat down at one of these pedestal cocktail tables. And uh, this stewardess came over and sat down with him, started talking to him. And then she gets up and walks into the, up to the cockpit door, opens it up, because we, they were all locked, obviously, walks into the flight deck, closes the door behind her, and she's in there for a minute or two and then comes out. And when she came out, she didn't pull the door closed. 
she pulled a tube and not secure. And then she goes back over and sits down with this guy at the table again. Well, then he gets up, he picks up his brown pa- paper packed package and walks up toward the flight deck. Well, the toilet and the flight deck were adjacent. They were at right angles to each other. So the toilet was at the top of the stairway. And he goes up there, and I'm watching this guy, thinking, okay, what's what's going on? And he gets up there because I know the flight deck door is not locked, not secured. And he reaches for the restroom, for the toilet with his right hand, but he nudges open the cockpit door with his left shoulder where he's got the package he's holding. And he starts to step into the flight deck. So at that time, you know, all bets were off. And I come jumping out of my seat. I ran across it. And the, the stewardess is screaming. But you, you guys have been in situations where everything goes black. You, you're not hearing anything. You don't know what's going on. And I'm just, I'm going to get this SOB before he gets in and secures the door. I hit the door with my left hand. If I'd ever played football, my my football coach would have been really proud because it was a straight arm that bounced that door back across the bulkhead behind the captain. And uh, I grabbed him as he was stepping in. I grabbed him around the throat and actually took him off the, off the deck. And the package drops, you know, and all the pilots. I'll never forget this. The captain, the first officer, the second officer, engineer. Man, that door hit. They all turned around. Their eyes were like saucers. And the stewardess is screaming. Well, it turned out that this guy had asked her if she would ask the captain if he could come and see the cockpit of the 747. He was a private pilot. He'd never been on one before. And he was just curious. He wanted to go up and shoot the shit with other pilots, you know. And so, but she didn't bother telling me. So I was sitting there and she going, but I looked at you and I nodded. Okay. Yeah. Well, you what looked the at hell me. does that mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it, it You might have been thinking I was cute, you know, Sky Marshall, you know, we're kind of buff. I'm a music guy, you know, impressing her. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, but the, the, you know, it turned out okay, but man. Well, the thing is, it wasn't like today where the air marshals will take a flight, hit the ground, take another flight. Then in those days, these these big flights on these jumbo jets, we'd hit security. We'd hit the airport three hours before flight time. And we'd actually meet with the crew in flight operations for briefings. So they knew, each one of them knew who we were. We knew who they were. We knew what the captain's attitude was, whether he was glad you were on board, whether he was a little intimidated because he had some punk with a gun, you know, that could take his authority away from him. So we'd go through all this three hours before flight time. And obviously, the communication didn't happen on that particular flight because I didn't get the, I didn't get the memo. Yeah, but it made for a good chapter in the book, didn't it? <laughs> well, because you get to think, well, that's the whole thing, right? You're thinking, I've been training for this my whole life. You, we got an intrusion, cockpit intrusion. You're going down, pal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is what I've been training for. Here we go. Hey, well, just out of curiosity, as a sky marshal back in those days, um, how did they, uh, what, did you, what were you guys armed with? If you qualified, you're carrying a Smith & Wesson Model 60 stainless steel 38 caliber, five-shot caliber, or five-shot revolver. Something yeah. that strikes hard, hard uh, you know, fear into the hearts of terrorists armed with Uzis and hand grenades. Yeah. And, uh, 
when we went through training at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, um, you know, you, you qualified. They give you a, a I got to forget what model it was, a Smith & Wesson four-inch blue gun, you know. And if you couldn't hit the target sufficiently with the little stainless steel, it was a two-and-a-half-inch barrel, you know. And, and it was a challenge. And, uh, you know, if you didn't qualify, you had to carry this hog around, this four-inch blue thing. But, yeah, at least you got an extra bullet with a six-round uh, cylinder. Well, apparently you didn't watch enough television, you know, uh, because guys, you know, on TV, like remember Cannon and now the other guys, oh, yeah. they could take a little snub-nosed two-inch revolver and hit a guy from 50 yards in the knee as he's True. running away. See, I winged him, you know? Yeah. Yep. yep. But it was easier to conceal. That was a good thing about it. You know, I'd usually carry mine a belly band underneath because you, you, you dress casually if you're going to Hawaii all the time. So it was, it was good. But then uh, you said that only lasted eight months. Why? Did an opportunity come up or was this just part of your pattern? It's like, dude, I can't last longer than eight months. So <laughs> time to move on. No. Actually, I was fortunate. The, they created a new position for a special agent, a criminal investigator with customs in Portland. And I had applied for it. And uh, I, I, like I say, I initially went to, um, to Continental for two months, came back, did a month on ground duty again, and then was assigned to Northwest Orient Airlines. Uh, flew out of Seattle for two months into Southeast Asia. And, and hit, we, what we'd do is go to Tokyo, base for about a week, and fly trips out of Tokyo to Hong Kong, Seoul, Okinawa. Well, how is it you had authority then when you are – is it because it was a U.S. airliner? Uh, because now – I mean, obviously, you're OCONUS at that time. You, you're not on any U.S. territory. What's that acronym there, OCONUS? Uh, uh, outside the <laughs> continental United States. Thank you. You haven't heard that for a long time, have you? Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, we had authority because we were simultaneously deputized as special deputy U.S. marshals. When we got our credentials and authorization as custom security officers, we were also special deputy U.S. marshals. U.S. marshals is the only federal officer that can enforce any law, any federal law. So when we're on a U.S. flag carrier anywhere in the world, it's like uh, it's like the embassy overseas. It's it's uh, it's U.S. So we were authorized to enforce the laws. Much to the consternation of the FBI, who think they're the top dog in the food chain, right? <laughs> they, got, they got a lot more statues to enforce, that's for sure. <laughs> hey, well, so, uh, but you moved on into that because, but I don't want to short circuit a lot of this. I want to get into your DEA stuff. But when did when did the DEA bug start hitting you? When did you start thinking about dope versus, you know, by the way, too, I got a one one observation and I saw it like on a story. Somebody showed a picture that said, of, of flying in the 60s, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, where people actually dressed up. They were in suits and ties. And when they served stuff, it was on China with real silverware. And they got, God, if, it, if it's like this in the 60s, imagine what it'll be like in 30 years. And then fast forward to where you got a plastic cup and a bag of peanuts. Yeah. Yeah. And plastic silverware. But so when, when did the DEA bug, uh, when did the drug bug, I should say, it wasn't DEA at that time, but when did the drug bug start hitting you? Well, actually, right off the bat, because, you know, all the stories I'd heard about the customs guys were drug-related from the Texas border. So when I became an agent in Portland, um, that's primarily what I was doing was drug enforcement because we had a port. The port of Portland was fairly busy, and we had a real sharp older agent that was a Chinese specialist. He spoke Mandarin Chinese, and he studied – he was some kind of college professor – or assistant professor before he became an agent. 
And he would he was kind of a lone wolf. He'd recruit informants on the waterfront from these ships. So he made a case, God, like a month. I became an agent in, I think, September of 71. And in November, he had a couple of informants. And we got three or four pounds of heroin and some opium and stuff off a, a Dutch ship. And, uh, you know, I won't go into it. There's some funny stories there, but that's in the book, so I won't waste your time with that. Um, but, yeah, I, so that was the first drug case. It was within two months or less. And then in January of 72, um, I stumbled into a deal where I was a case agent, the, the lead agent on the largest hashish seizure ever made in the United States. And at that time, it was touted as the second largest ever made in the world. Um because there was an organization out of California called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, and they were kind of loosely aligned, I think, with Timothy Leary and that whole bunch. Oh, you know, of the, course. Tune in, yeah. you know, yeah. turn on and drop out. Exactly. And these guys had gone to Pakistan. They took a new Volkswagen truck with a camper. They went to Pakistan and loaded it up with, I forget how many kilos, um, 300, I, I forget what the, the amount was now. But anyhow, they brought it back, and it was destined for Vancouver, British Columbia, to be offloaded. Well, wait a minute. Wait, they 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 shipped a VW van to Pakistan to load it up to only ship it back again. Correct. They actually got the the hash. Uh, there's some question. They shipped it out of Bombay, India, on the way back. They arrived in Karachi, and then a couple months later, two or three months later, they shipped it back from uh, Bombay, India. So we're, we were never sure where they got the hash. We, we suspect Nepal because that was a big source of supply for hash. But what Considering they did, the cost of shipping, that had to cut into their profit margin a lot. I mean, you're shipping a big thing over and then shipping it back. Yeah, but considering the price and, and the load they had, uh, that was just overhead. Okay. Uh, it was one of those deals. But the interesting thing was a customs patrol officer, a uniformed customs guy, not an inspector, but a patrol officer, uh, in Portland, and he's the only one we had, and he was doing routine searches of some of the ships. He was just boarding the ships and taking a look for anything suspicious. He saw this thing lash down on the deck, and the only reason it was on the deck was because it had been destined for Vancouver, British Columbia. He started looking at it, and the the uh, seaport in British in uh, Vancouver was on strike, so it went to Vancouver. They turned it around. It came all the way back down to Portland. And it happened to be on the deck because they've been prepping it for offload. So he looks at this thing, starts looking at the paperwork, and he finds out the consignee is a guy from Los Angeles, but he's shipping it to Vancouver, B.C. So ding, ding, ding. I mean, what's wrong with that picture? So he takes a closer look at it, and he, bottom line is he drills the undercarriage. It comes out, you know, test positive for hash. So it turns out it's a big load. We set up a sting. We coordinated with a shipping company, with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, with the guys in Los Angeles, and sent this guy a message saying, you know, yada, 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 here it is. It couldn't come off in Vancouver, but if you want it, you can come and pick it up in Portland. So bottom line is three guys came up to Portland, two on surveillance, and one guy to pick it up and drive it. And we arrested all of them. And, uh, you know, it was a big case. Fortunately... I was so new. I was like a GS5 agent. And uh, 
there were other guys in the office. It was such a big deal that the assistant special agent in charge came down from uh, Seattle to personally run the case. The commissioner customs made press releases from D.C. and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I was on the paperwork as a case agent. And everybody else was running it for me. <laughs> I looked it up in your book. It was 600 kilos of ash. Six kilos. Yeah, 600, 600. kilos. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think the street value would have been of that at that time? Do you remember what a kilo went for? I don't, but if Murph has it in the book, does it say? I'm not I sure. I think it was $2 million. I think it was a couple million dollars, yeah. Yeah, I mean, which was huge money, obviously, in that day. Um, and like you said, shipping. But see, my first thing would have been is just looking at the history of the the little VWs. All I can see is a VW microbus with Cheech and Chong in it. You know, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this was like a pickup truck. It wasn't even a bus. It was like a pickup truck with a big camper unit on the back. It was unique. That's what caught his attention. It was it was unlike anything he'd ever seen before. So, <laughs> well, so you start off your career with a huge six hundred kilo seizure that you were just case, you were just a case agent just in name only, right? Pretty much, that's it. Yeah. Why? Why? Why not put a why, why not put like a GS nine or a you know somebody more senior on there as the case agent? Well, because initially, when uh, when the uh, CPO, the Customs Patrol officer, did the drilling, he called up the rack, the resident agent in charge, and because I was a new guy, I didn't have any real active cases. He just arbitrarily assigned it to me. He said, "Okay, new case, give it to the new guy," and nobody had any clue of what it was going to evolve into. So, yeah, I mean, realistically. The senior agents ran it, and like I say, then the ASAC came down to personally take it over and all that. But it was kind of a, a neat jump start. <laughs> well, so, so then take us forward from there. So after you do that, and now you've got, now you can walk in and say, got your trophy shot. I got 600 kilos of hash. Yeah. No good, no good deed goes unpunished. How did they punish you? <laughs> well, then, well then, then actually, I went to, um, uh, training school the end of uh, that year and then they created simultaneously they created what they call the uh, O'Dale program the Office for Drug Abuse Law Enforcement um, and that was a combination due to street drugs it, we, we had the old Bureau of Narcotics Dangerous Drugs we had Customs we had the uh, State Police County Police City Police we were doing street street buys that kind of stuff so I was assigned to that task force in Portland, Oregon, in about December of 72, and did that for the next, I don't know, four, five, six months. And then in July of 73, the start of the fiscal year, July 1st, 73, they created DEA. Because what they were tr trying to do was put all the counter-drug narcotics stuff into one, one bailiwick. And they brought in BNDD. They abolished BNDD. And it was kind of a an interesting thing because the guys he didn't want to pick up, the Deadwood, they just didn't rehire. It was like when a U.S. attorney submits his you know, resignation, and if the new administration doesn't want him, they, he's not rehired. So they did that, and then they took about 500 of the existing customs agents, uh, about 1,100 at the time, I think, and they took about half of them and combined them with the former BNDD agents and created DEA. Wow, 1973. So I went to DEA. Yeah, Friday Friday night, I think it was, I had DEA credentials and badge, and I carried my stuff down to the, it was in the Georgia Pacific Building, Portland, Oregon. That's where the O'Dale program was. So 
I went back to work and, and had to wait around for new DEA credentials. And, you know, I transferred my handgun. I had a 357 Magnum that I took from customs. That was my assigned weapon. I needed new badge and credentials. And other than that, I was DEA on the 1st of July. Badges. We don't need no stinking badges. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Hey, but it was interesting. And I was trying to find if I could, if, trying to find a source for this. Uh, but I, I believe after DEA was created, it wasn't too long after that, I believe the first honorary DEA agent that Nixon appointed was <laughs> Elvis Presley. <laughs> thank, you, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much. Do you remember that happening? I remember it happening. I, actually, for a long time, I, at one point in time, I was shopping around in Georgetown back here on training or something, and I actually bought a copy of that picture. With Nixon presenting him a badge, and I had that was one of the things I had on my wall for a few years, was Elvis Presley getting his his badge, and his outfit. You know, if I, you know, the like yeah. <laughs> yeah. ever much there, Mister Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> I think they made a movie of that actually. I don't, oh I don't my remember. god, that was that was so hilarious. I remember, like, I mean, I was younger. But uh, I go back and I look at that and I go, man, if did they not have any clue what Elvis was into? It was another one of those political things, I think. Well, Nixon, Nixon knew he was going to need some help. I believe Watergate was just around the corner. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> he was trying to get some help from the king. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I am not a crook. That's where I think he learned it from. He learned that Elvis thing. Well, I am not a crook from Elvis. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. So you are now in DEA. I mean, man, you've done a very circuitous path. Sorry, I'm still so tired. I've been traveling with you. Circuitous path. I mean, but by this time, you've had as many jobs as places you've lived by the time you get to DEA, right? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Do you finally decide that maybe I ought to give this DEA thing a shot and go more than a couple years? Oh, I tell you, I was living the dream because stuff was happening, starting to happen that rivaled some of the stories that I'd heard about that got my attention, you know, that got my imagination going and the juices flowing. So, yeah, the, the problem was, very honestly, I, I loved the job so much that it uh, my priorities got skewed. And I, yeah, my marriage suffered because of that. My wife ended up taking the girls. By then, I had a second daughter. And they went back to, uh, to Colorado. And I, you know, we, we were divorced. So then it was the job, you know. And I decided, well, I, I, I got to do something. I want to do something on my own because I had a senior partner in Portland. It was a good thing. I mean, it's good. Like Murph said, you know, you get a senior partner, you get a junior guy, you got a guiding hand, whether it's a training officer as a cop or whatever. And I had a little bit of a rebel in me where I, I kind of resented being told what I could and couldn't do by this senior guy. So I applied for a job in Spokane, Washington, because it was a small office and I knew they needed somebody to kind of jack up statistics and get some action going. So I, I got the job. I, I drove up there, was interviewed by the agent in charge up there, got the job. And so I was in Portland for a year. Then I drove in 74. I transferred to Spokane and spent the next few years in Spokane. Kind of in, as I said at one point, ripping and running. Well, you know, but you brought up something that's kind of common, uh, obviously, in law enforcement, because we've all talked about this before, too. Sometimes we get our priorities. You know, um, the job came first before everything else. Yeah. You know, and it takes, I mean, it takes a lot of uh, years to finally realize, yeah, you know, the job's always going to be there the next day. Your family may not be. Yeah, it was a it was a 
significant lesson to learn. Um, so, but, but I mean, obviously you go through that and, and you're throwing yourself into your work. So what happens in Spokane? Because, um, I mean, at some point you, you're in Washington and then you're going to end up in, uh, Texas, right down in El Paso. Yeah. But that was, you know, I spent about six years in Spokane and I had a good time. I made some good cases. I enjoyed what I was doing. I traveled a lot. Uh, it was a four man office, including the boss. Um, one agent had relatives in Montana. He spent a lot of time in Montana. He wasn't even in Spokane, uh, the majority of the time. Another agent, uh, he didn't work a lot at night, really good guy, knowledgeable guy, but he just, he had his priorities squared away, I guess you could say at the time. And so it was kind of on me. And I, I did Eastern Washington. I did, uh, Northeastern Oregon. Uh, the whole about 200 mile border with Canada worked with the Mounties a lot. Uh, all the local cops. I'd go down to Tri Cities, Richland, Kennewick, that area, uh, Yakima, different places in Washington. I was on the road a lot. Made a lot of cases. Made some good conspiracy cases. What What were the uh, What was your What was the meat and potatoes? What were the staples for you in terms of making cases? What was big at that time? You know, I tried heroin when I first got up there. And Wait a I minute, didn't you want to rephrase that? No, no, no. I, yeah. Well, first it's the turkey, uh, now it's heroin. See, uh, yeah. a life of crime. Big jump. Big jump. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.